This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, and it's the News Roundup. I'm Amna Nawaz from the PBS NewsHour, in for Jen White. Where on earth do you begin after what's been a huge week for news? It could be Tennessee, there's lots to catch up on there, or Wisconsin, or Chicago. Elections there are something we need to talk about. But the news magnet draws us back to events that played out this week in Manhattan. We today uphold our solemn responsibility to ensure that everyone stands equal before the law. No amount of money and no amount of power changes that enduring American principle. Joining us in D.C. is Mario Parker. He's the White House and politics team leader at Bloomberg. On the line from Ann Arbor is Zoe Clark. She's the political director at Michigan Radio and co-host of the program It's Just Politics. And in studio with us is Idris Calhoun. He's Washington bureau chief for The Economist. Thank you all for joining us. Let's jump in now with the big story of the week, former President Donald Trump's arraignment. It's the first time a U.S. president has been indicted on criminal charges. In a Manhattan court, Trump pleaded not guilty to 34 felony counts connected to hush money payments leading up to the 2016 election. Afterward, the former president denounced the charges in a fiery speech at his Mar-a-Lago club. As it turns out, virtually everybody that has looked at this case, including rhinos and even hardcore Democrats, say there is no crime and that it should never have been brought. Never have been brought. Everybody. Even people that aren't big fans have said it. They said this is not the right thing to do. It's an insult to our country as the world is already laughing at us. Mario, start us off here. Let's let's talk about the charges that Trump is facing. Remind us, what is it that prosecutors are saying he did? Yeah, well, uh, the prosecutors are saying essentially, as, as you mentioned, that he he paid, uh, he facilitated hush money payments uh, over an alleged affair back in uh, ahead of the 2016 election. Right. So the, the case that's brought by Alvin Bragg is that the former president falsified business records with intent to defraud, which brings it up to a class E felony, which is the lowest felony in, in, in New York. But it does bring it up to a felony saying that, that, that he essentially and this, this attacks one of the president, former president's fav, favorite lines that it. It was in pursuit of uh, election, damaging election integrity, right? So he was doing these things to uh, hide uh, damaging information that would hurt him in the 2016 election. I think they said specifically to keep the hide this damaging information from the voting public, right? And in that same speech, the former president also called for that district attorney, Alvin Bragg, to be prosecuted. That's the Manhattan DA who's leading the investigation. Mario, what do you make of the overall reaction to the charges and to the prosecutor from former President Trump? 
Well, we're saying Trump pulled from a familiar playbook, which is to uh, point the finger back at whatever is being tossed uh, his way, right? Essentially to throw the grenade back at at his opponent and say, no, his opponent is actually the real person who's who's committing the crimes there. So you're saying him do that with Bragg, saying that the the leaks that have come out of the case warrant prosecution for for Alvin Bragg. You're also seeing the party. I mean, you're you're seeing the president really lean into grievance in order to rally his party around his uh, both his what he has perceived or what he says uh, is is his innocence, but also his political ambitions. Well, District Attorney Alvin Bragg held his own press conference after the arraignment, and he defended the indictment. Under New York State law, it is a felony to falsify business records with intent to defraud and an intent to conceal another crime. That is exactly what this case is about. 34 false statements made to cover up other crimes. These are felony crimes in New York State, no matter who you are. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. Idris, what do we know about how strong this case is against former President Trump? Has a case like this been prosecuted before? A case like this has never been prosecuted before. The legal theory here is that uh, Donald Trump uh, violated state law in the pursuit of enabling him to violate campaign finance law at the federal level. That's a legal theory that hasn't been tested before. And arguably, this is perhaps the weakest case that is currently pending against the president. So in Georgia, in Fulton County, there's an investigation also by state prosecutors examining whether or not Donald Trump exhorted uh, state officials to uh, commit election fraud, essentially. We all remember that tape where he urged Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, to find 11,780 votes. Um, There's an ongoing federal investigation into uh, his mishandling of classified information that prompted that raid in Mar-a-Lago all those months ago. Feels like an eon at this point. So, you know, this case is is going to take a while. The the next court date is going to be December. uh, And we're going to see what the prosecution has. Some people thought that the uh, unveiled indictment would give a lot more details, that there would be a lot of damning evidence. I don't think that we saw that yet. uh, But uh, it's going to be winding for a long time. So I think we're going to be returning to these circuses for a while now. And Zoe, we've been seeing a lot of reaction. What about from President Biden and and the White House or Democrats? Have they responded to the charges against former president? Yeah, the White House is remaining mum, right? And and for good reason, because it seems like everyone else is doing the talking, right? And so for the White House to be able to sort of keep their distance and, you know, what they continue to say is we're continuing to do our work. We're not going to pay attention to this sort of sideshow. Of course, though, everyone else is paying attention, including Democrats. And you're seeing Democratic surrogates, of course, you know, be all over cable news and and talking about it. Um, In terms of the Republican side, as we've been discussing, George Santos, the embattled Republican, was the only Republican congressman from the New York delegation who was there. Uh, He even left uh, after a while. And not shockingly, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene was also there. Well, Congress hasn't been as quiet on the issue. House Republicans are condemning the investigation with Speaker Kevin McCarthy tweeting, quote, Bragg's weaponization of the federal justice process will be held accountable by Congress, end quote. Uh, Mario, uh, on Thursday, House Republicans subpoenaed one of the former prosecutors who was leading the investigation into Mr. Trump, a man named Mark Pomerantz. What can you tell us about that and why it matters? 
Yeah, well, what you're saying is the party and the House Republicans specifically rally around former President Donald Trump. Jim Jordan, who was arguably one of uh, the former president's biggest and strongest supporters, is also judiciary chair. So we're seeing him wield some of that power by subpoenaing uh, Pomerantz, as you mentioned. Uh, Pomerantz uh, had the, he, he released a memoir last year. Uh, he famously resigned in February. February uh, 2022, along with uh, Kerry Dunn, uh, because they, they, given the appearance that Bragg wasn't going to bring forth charges as well. Uh, so he's been sp- speaking about the case quite publicly. And Republicans are looking for ways, House Republicans in particular, are looking for ways to, to really undercut this investigation and to try to argue to the American public that it's politicized. So they're going that route with the subpoena. Idris, there's a long timeline ahead, but I should point out in an interview with the Today Show, one of Mr. Trump's lawyers, a man named Joe Takapina, said they may not even get a jury. Trump had previously said on social media that Manhattan was what he called a very unfair venue. So what are the chances of getting a fair jury in Manhattan for the former president? Not a crazy argument at all. Uh, To select a jury, you need uh, someone who says that they will be impartial, someone who is not going to be on the jury just so they can convict Donald Trump. Or it might be rare in Manhattan, but there might be someone who wants to be on the jury so that they could save Donald Trump. Uh, Getting an impartial jury is is very hard. In other celebrity cases, that's required moving forums. Uh, Something like that would obviously be very difficult to do. Uh, in this case, and jury selection might go on for weeks uh, as judges pour through thousands of potential people who are called uh, to this case. So um, every step, and that's not even getting to the motions to uh, maybe dismiss the case. And I, I imagine this will be dragging out uh, well past the election date in, in November. Greg is asking, could President Biden issue an executive order to prevent a candidate with a criminal past or currently indicted or arrested to run for office? Kai is asking if there is a not guilty verdict before the election. How would that affect the outcome? I don't think we have the answers to those yet, but we'll be following the story for many months to come. We're also keeping an eye on some of the severe weather that's been impacting millions of people. On Wednesday, a tornado hit southeastern Missouri, killing five people and causing widespread destruction. It was part of a third wave of deadly weather we've seen over the past two weeks. In total, these storms have produced dozens of tornadoes, killing at least 63 people. We're just getting started with the News Roundup. Back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. A member FDIC. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. It's the News Roundup. Let's jump back into it and turn to some new polling that might tell us something about the race for the White House and how this week's events could shape the outcome. According to a Reuters-Ipsos poll, former President Donald Trump has widened his lead over his rivals. 48 percent of self-described Republicans say they want Trump to be their party's presidential nominee. That is up from 44 percent in March. And his closest rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, is now polling under 20 percent. That is down from 30 percent last month. DeSantis has not officially said he's running. So Idris, according to Trump's campaign, this indictment has actually helped them to raise money, an extra $7 million dollars. Do we know if this case will help him or harm him politically? I think it'll help him in the primary. What we see is that everyone who is thinking about running against him feels compelled to give statements in his defense. Mike Pence, um, who Trump supporters wanted to kill on January 6th, feels compelled to say that this is a political witch hunt. Uh, Ron DeSantis has to go above and beyond what everyone else is saying and says that he won't assist in an extradition request, uh, which is perhaps not even constitutional. But it illustrates the bind that so many Republican challengers to Donald Trump have, which is that they simultaneously want to differentiate themselves from him, but they can't afford to lose his base. And if you believe that the deep state is conspiring against the man, you can't really have the room to define yourself. And and the news media obviously is going to get sucked into another Trump vortex, and the room to to maneuver out of that is going to be tough. Uh, So in the in the general election, obviously an indictment isn't helpful, but I think in the uh, Republican primary, uh, it's really hard for anyone to get escape velocity from the Trump tornado. Well, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is convinced this case is only going to help Mr. Trump's chances of securing that Republican nomination. On Wednesday, he spoke to NBC's Andrea Mitchell. You have Mitt Romney, you have Jeb Bush saying for what it is, and I think it's spiraling the country in a place we don't want to be. Let's start respecting each other. Let's respect the rule of law and let's not play politics with it. Do you worry he is the Republican frontrunner? Likely will be the nominee right now. Do you worry that he could lose the general election because of this indictment and the other investigations? I think if someone wants to play with indictments, I think it helps them to campaign better. I look at his numbers who get stronger. So I'm not sure if the Democrats think this is helping in a manner, but what I do know is it hurts the entire nation. Mario, as Idris just mentioned, the indictment, the allegations, they are helping with the Republican base. They could propel Mr. Trump through a primary. But does the party really believe that would help him in a general election? 
Well, here's the problem. Uh, the Republican Party is stuck in a paradox that it's been in for the last seven years when it comes to Trump, right? Where he's got this 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 raucous base that's uh, that threatens primaries against anyone that detracts against him. But at the same time, there's this converse uh, and similar reaction from independents who are the lifeblood for any general election victory, right? So kind of in line with what Idris said, uh, while it looks like by all accounts the party and speaking with sources, everyone's rallying around Trump, Again, when when you look at the, the, especially with this case in particular, this will do nothing to win back some of the independent voters, particularly suburban women who have defected from the Republican Party in general elections over the last few years. Zoe, let's talk about Michigan in particular, because based on what you've seen there in recent elections, both in the 2018 midterms, again in 2020, when Mr. Trump was on the ballot, if he is the Republican nominee, Could former President Trump win a state like Michigan? It's a great question. I mean, so let's go back to 2016 when he won the state by less than 11,000 votes. Uh, Four years later in 2020, lost the state by much more than 100,000 votes. So I think to what Mario is saying, to what Idris is saying, he could get through a primary in Michigan, absolutely. But when it comes to the general, that is a different conversation. And that's the case whether it's in Michigan or it feels that way across the country. Again, this is revving up the base. But as we have seen, as Nikki Haley, a candidate, said, Republicans continue to lose the popular vote. And does this turn out moderates and independents who are exhausted by sort of the Trump circus, whether they even believe necessarily in his policy? That's one thing. But just don't want to continue this day-to-day chaos that the former president seems to bring every single day. Idris, what's your take on that? We have heard from Nikki Haley, from others who say Republicans have to broaden their base if they're going to perform better in the general. Yeah, uh, Trump occupies the devotion of a significant minority of the country. That's enough to get him through the general election. Uh, But we've seen that he's never managed to win the popular vote. Um, Arguably, he's overseen several uh, consecutive election declines. You see Paul Ryan, the former Speaker of the House, has been making this point repeatedly. Donald Trump lost uh, 2018 for the Republicans. He lost 2020 and he lost 2022 for them as well by basically relitigating his past grievance campaign. I don't see any way that uh, Trump can expand his base at the moment. Uh, And that might be for the benefit of Joe Biden uh, against a younger candidate like Ron DeSantis. He might not look as spry, but against Donald Trump with all the baggage that he has – I think he he has a good chance. Of course, the the, uh, retort to that is everyone thought the same about Hillary Clinton and look where we ended up. Well, Mario, what about this no labels movement some people may have heard of? It's a nonprofit. It's backing the push for a third party independent candidate for president. They're spending tens of millions of dollars to get on the ballot in all 50 states. They call that uh, an insurance policy against the major parties nominating uh, who they consider to be unacceptable candidates next year. At what point do you think we'll need to start talking seriously about the no labels movement? 
I think we're at that point now. I'm not, uh, where we're we're speaking about it. Uh, Joe Lieberman uh, met with the, the group last week to figure out ways to uh, get uh, the, the get on ballots for all 50 states. They've got uh, upward millions and millions of dollars, 70 million dollars uh, into this campaign as well. You see the Arizona Democratic Party taking it very seriously with filing a, a lawsuit. You've seen Democratic groups uh, saying that hey, this is a plot that will end ultimately uh, culminate with a re-election of uh, former President Donald Trump. I mean, when you look at Arizona, where Biden Trump beat Trump by less than 11,000 votes, and Georgia, where he beat him by less than 12,000 votes, I mean, the margins in our elections are so narrow that they could be tilted by any side. So fair enough. It's been a busy, busy week. You might have missed this. I'm convinced that people want leaders that appeal to the best of America and not simply appeal to our worst instincts. And that inspires me when I see everyday Americans just saying, give us good leadership, give us common sense, consistent conservatism, and optimism about our great country. And I believe I can be that kind of leader for the people of America. That was former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson announcing his campaign for the GOP presidential nomination. Idris, the former governor of Arkansas, comes with a long resume. He is a known quantity. Where do you rank his chances within the modern-day Republican Party? Um, I've met the governor. He's an exceedingly polite man. Uh, I don't think that this is the Republican Party for him anymore. Uh, It's unfortunate to say. In the same way that uh, Mitt Romney is a bit of a dodo bird within the Republican Party, I think that, uh, you know, governors like Asa Hutchinson, who are relatively moderate, uh, want to restore a certain amount of sanity to the republic. Um, that's just not the route for them anymore. What we see instead is that uh, people like Ron DeSantis capture the imagination of the party and they do it in a very particular way that's uh, through the conservative media, bystepping the mainstream media entirely. Uh, I, I don't think that there's that route anymore in, in the party, unfortunate as it is to say. Zoe, what's your take on this? At some point, if depending on how this case against former President Trump unfolds, does there need to be some sort of decision within the party to coalesce behind someone else if it is not Mr. Trump? Well, and that's the conversation that you're already seeing about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, right? I mean, I just don't see a path uh, for Hutchinson to get through, as we were talking about, a Republican primary or, you know, caucus, depending on the state. But uh, Governor DeSantis, for example, was just here in Michigan yesterday, um, where some 18 state House and state senators sent him a letter uh, a few months ago, basically stating, if you do run, we are behind you. So I think we are going to see this sort of continued machinations of Republicans trying to say, we want the policy of Trump. We again don't want the circus. Is that Ron DeSantis? The issue, of course, as you note, is his polling just is not keeping up, particularly uh, after this week's events in New York. I do want to stress we have a long way to go before the election and many things could change. But uh, Mario, weigh in on this now. We know this month in particular, April could be critical when it comes to watching how the GOP field could change or take shape. What are you looking out for? Who are you following? Well, I think when we we speak with Republicans, they're trying to figure out what's going on. We've mentioned his name a couple of times here, Ron DeSantis. He's been losing altitude in polls against Trump. And at some point, it seems like Republican primary voters, what they like about former President Donald Trump is uh, is his, his... 
his his the fight that he has. And so they're not saying that out of Iran DeSantis right now. And he's the best position to take the cudgel, if you will, or the, the scepter rather, if you will, from former President Donald Trump to lead the party. And we're just not seeing him do that. Meanwhile, I should point out we have not yet seen an official re-election announcement from the current president, Joe Biden. Fallout continues after a mass shooting at a Nashville elementary school last week killed three children and three adults. On Monday, more than a thousand local students marched on the state capitol to call for stronger gun laws. By Thursday, Tennessee's GOP supermajority expelled two black Democratic state lawmakers who joined the march. Republicans held a vote to expel a third white Democrat, but they did not succeed. Mario, explain to us what's going on here. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, Amna, the, the, we've seen uh, representatives, Tennessee representatives, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, who are both uh, young black uh, legislators in the state. They were expelled for participating in a in a in a protest uh, in the wake of the shooting from last week at the Christian School in in Tennessee. Uh, they were joined by Gloria Johnson, uh, a white Democrat as well. Uh, but while the the supermajority, the Republican supermajority, voted to expel. Jones and Pearson for violation of decorum, uh, they didn't uh, expel Johnson. Johnson pointed to race. uh, So we're seeing a couple of the hot button issues meet right there, right? We're seeing gun reform and then also race um, converge in this case. Well, John in Baltimore is asking one of the key questions. He writes, can someone explain how the legislature in Tennessee removing three of its own members for protesting inaction on gun control measures is not a violation of their First Amendment rights? Idris, how is this possible? Is this legal? Um, Yeah, I think that the, uh, you know, Constitution there, and it applies to the U.S. Capitol here, says that it's basically up to the discretion of a supermajority, two-thirds of the body, to vote whether or not to expel a member. And usually that political judgment is used very sparingly. Um, In Tennessee, it's only been used a handful of times, generally after someone has committed a heinous amount of crimes. You see that in Congress as well. Uh, But, you know, ultimately like impeachment, which also has a super high threshold, uh, you know, there isn't a clear guidance on, on what the criteria are. But the understanding is that a body would only feel compelled to do that in the case of extreme action. And while we saw a disruption of the normal proceedings of of decorum, which is the argument here, um, everyone agrees that this is a fairly extreme reaction. It would be a bit like the Senate expelling Elizabeth Warren for speaking out of turn uh, uh, with Mitch McConnell, if you remember that incident a few years ago. There's another major revelation I want to get to briefly here that came out this week about a member of the U.S. Supreme Court. According to a new investigation from ProPublica, Justice Clarence Thomas had accepted luxury vacations from a GOP donor in billion businessman Harlan Crow for more than 20 years. These vacations likely cost millions of dollars, according to ProPublica. Thomas failed to report them as part of his annual financial disclosure. Mario, how significant are these findings? Uh, this is huge. Uh, ProPublica's reporting, I mean, just blockbuster, tour de, for- tour de force in reporting, found that one trip alone was worth about 500 thousand dollars right private jets yachts uh going from in indonesia skipping islands etc uh that this has been going on for about two decades almost every summer in which uh the thomases have vacationed with harlan crow 
either uh, in one on one of his uh, yachts or one of his estates, uh, particularly one in New York, and uh, especially as well. I mean, this is a pretty huge deal, and again, it brings right back to the fore uh, whether or not the Supreme Court is above the type of ethical disclosures that are required for other federal civil ser- servants. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Let's get back to the Roundup and talk for a moment about elections that took place this week. Well, Chicago will soon have a new Democrat in the mayor's office. On Tuesday, voters elected former teacher and union leader Brandon Johnson in a runoff against former Chicago Public School CEO Paul Vallis. Let's take this bold progressive movement around these United States of America. <laughs> Chicago. We can show the country, we can show the world what's possible when we stand on our values as one people. Johnson will be Chicago's fourth black mayor. He replaces Mayor Lori Lightfoot. She came in third in February's general election and didn't make it to the runoff. Idris, let's just start with Brandon Johnson. What do we need to know about him? Yeah, he was a Cook County commissioner. Uh, He was previously a union organizer. He only stopped taking his salary from the Chicago Teachers Union uh, a few months before uh, his campaign. And, you know, he was in a runoff election against Paul Vallis, um, who was the former chief executive of the Chicago Public Schools, um, an advocate in a lot of major education roles that he's had in New Orleans and other places of charter schools and uh, the portfolio model of education. So the two came with diametrically opposed views on the education system. Uh, They also argued quite a lot about crime. Brandon Johnson had made statements in 2020 that suggested that he was in favor of defunding the police, and he kept uh, a lot of the campaign on defense, uh, trying to walk away from those statements because Chicago has seen an increase in homicides over the last two years. Uh, It was a knife-edge election, but a lot of people didn't expect that Johnson would win. They thought that he was a bit too progressive for the state – or sorry – for the city, I should say. Um, Lori Lightfoot even said, I think, bless him, uh, Brandon Johnson isn't going to be mayor. Uh, but that turned out to be incorrect. So, Mario, how did he do it? What were the communities that helped him win that uh, mayor's race? And what were his big campaign promises? 
Yeah, well, what he was able to do was stitch together a coalition of black voters on the south and, and west sides of the city, along with liberals along the lakefront. It's a, a familiar fabric, one that was employed back in the 80s with Harold uh, Washington as well. Well, he compa- campaigned, as Idris mentioned, he campaigned on crime, but also uh, uh, nuances on how to address uh, crime in the city. Uh, his big play and his big appeal to voters was, quite frankly, saying that he will figure out ways to address the root causes of crime. Some of that is affordable housing and then education as well. I want to move on now to another big election on Tuesday. Voters in Wisconsin chose liberal judge Janet Protasowicz to fill a seat on the state Supreme Court. Our democracy will always prevail. Too many have tried to overturn the will of the people. Today's results show that Wisconsinites believe in democracy and the democratic process. That was just part of what Judge Protasewicz shared with her supporters on Tuesday. The election means liberals will hold the majority on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court for the first time in 15 years. Idris, why is this significant? Well, it matters for a few reasons. The first is that Wisconsin is, by some measures, the most gerrymandered state in the country. Um, That is because they've relied on maps constructed by a Republican supermajority that are heavily favorable. The Supreme Court has declined to intervene in those cases. Um, So it could mean that uh, another challenge is soon heard, and that could mean that the Republican power in the state legislature is diluted. The second important point is uh, that uh, at the moment, uh, abortion is illegal in Wisconsin because of an old law dating back to the 19th century. Uh, That will be challenged, and the Supreme Court is probably going to weigh in with decisive consequences for women in the state. Uh, What was unusual about this election when I went and and reported on it was just how clear the judges were about their uh, opinions. Uh, uh, Justice Janet, Judge Janet, no one tried to pronounce her last name. so (laughs) They didn't make the same mistake I did. No, her opponent and, and and, and her both. They just called themselves uh, Judge <laughs> Shannon. But, you know, she, she made this uh, uh, point of saying, my personal values are that I think every woman should have a right to an abortion. I will judge the case on its merits, but let me tell you what my personal values are, which is an odd thing uh, to see in a judicial election. But and also, I mean, Zoe will, will, will know, but, uh, you know, abortion has proven to be a powerful vote getter in the Midwest. Uh, I think it is the reason that Gretchen Whitmer won by such a, a substantial majority in, in Michigan last year. And we also all remember that Kansas referendum as well. Uh, Zoe, jump in here. What, what does this mean for the potency of abortion rights as an issue? It's huge. And it's it's yet another point uh, for national politicians to recognize, also locally, that abortion matters in elections in America right now. In fact, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, as you alluded to, a huge reason that not only that she won, but that Michigan Democrats took back both the state house and Senate together for the first time in 40 years was because there was a constitutional amendment on the ballot in November. And just this past Wednesday, Governor Gretchen Whitmer repealed a 1931 law that criminalized abortion. 
So, meanwhile, I want to ask you about another new report from the Environmental Protection Agency this week. They estimate that more than 9 million lead pipes are carrying drinking water into millions of homes throughout the country. Mm-hmm. The study says those pipes are known to be, quote, a significant source of lead contamination. The agency looked at more than 3,600 public water systems across the U.S. and its territories. What states in the survey had the most lead pipes? Where Where's the area of concern, Zoe? Sure. It was Florida and Illinois uh, had the most, respectively. But really, this is a concern across the country. Um, and where I sit right now in Ann Arbor, uh, if I look, you know, to my northeast, I'm, I'm but, you know, 50 miles away uh, from Flint, Michigan, whereas, you know, listeners will know this has been such an issue in our state. And this is going to be uh, a long time work, right? So 9.2 million lead pipes across the country. Uh, I can tell you that in Flint, there's still 5% of lead pipes that that need to be uh, repealed here in this state. And this is years later. So I fear this is going to be something that uh, the country is going to be uh, dealing with, uh, grappling with, replacing uh, for years and years to come. Mario, the Biden administration has allocated a lot of money to deal with this, right? In 2021, as part of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, $15 billion in there to replace all the lead water pipes in the country within the decade. Uh, The EPA's latest estimate says the nation will need $625 billion to revitalize its drinking water infrastructure. So how is the White House funding state water projects considering this study's new results? Yeah, well, I mean, again, to, to Zoe's point, this has been an issue for a while, an issue that, uh, that that Flint brought to the fore years ago. We saw it rear its head again, unfortunately, last year with Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, but the, the White House is, I mean, again, $15 million has been allocated. Uh, they're, they're doling out $6.5 billion for drinking water upgrades and $3 billion in lead service as well. It still relatively drops in the bucket as to uh, what we need in order to overhaul the, 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 the total infrastructure. But I think what the White House is looking at is essentially the old adage that if, they send, if government sends the signal and makes the initial investment, that the private money will start to flow in as well. Another piece of news to share with you from this week. NASA has named the crew of its upcoming Artemis II moon mission. American astronauts Christina Hammock-Coke, Victor Glover, and Reed Weissman, and Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen will be the first people to launch on a U.S. mission toward the moon since Apollo 17 in 1972. Here's a clip of Christina Koch released by NASA. When I was young, I had a poster of the Earthrise picture, the famous picture that was taken on Apollo 8. And the fact that it was a human behind the lens that made that picture so profound and changed how we all thought of our own home was so amazing to me. The moon is not just a symbol of thinking about our place in the universe. It's not just a symbol of exploration. It's actually a beacon for science. It's a beacon for understanding where we came from. While the crew won't land on the moon for this mission, it will orbit the moon and test systems for future missions. Next now to the world of sports. This week, the Women's Basketball NCAA Finals Tournament pulled in a record 9.9 million viewers. I'll say it again, 9.9 million, making it the most viewed women's NCAA tournament ever. The Louisiana State University Tigers came out on top over the Iowa Hawkeyes, but not without ruffling some feathers. 
player of the game, LSU's Angel Reese, is receiving some backlash for what some called unsportsmanlike conduct against Iowa's Caitlin Clark. Zoe, bring us up to speed here. Why are people criticizing Angel Reese? Oh, my goodness. Well, it kind of started on Twitter where all calm and rational conversations happen, (laughs) of course. Um, Look, I mean, and and it's a larger conversation about race and about gender, but basically it was trash-talking on the court. Um, and and there was some conversations, again, on Twitter about Angel and her, you know, quote unquote, behavior. And then others were very quick to say, look, Caitlin Clark and others, you know, do the same thing. Uh, one of them was, you can't see me. You know, I think there are some folks who might not follow sports closely, just kept seeing photos, whether it be on Twitter or news news uh, shots of, you know, a hand in front of a face. And and again, this this goes back to sports and, and how athletes uh, work together or, you know, take each other on. Uh, but of course, it, it blew up very quickly and again, became a conversation about uh, race and gender and, and some double standards. It is custom, we should remind folks, for national champions to visit the White House. But Reese has also said her team won't go after First Lady Jill Biden considered inviting the runners up. Reese was talking to the Paper Route podcast about the invitation. You felt like they, they should have came because of sportsmanship, right? They can have that spot. Like, we'll go to the Obamas. We'll, we'll, we'll see, I'm going to see Michelle. I'm going to see Barack. Mario, the First Lady has since clarified her statements and said the invitation is only for the champions, only for LSU. But how did her suggestion and all the conversation that followed factor into all of these discussions about race in the tournament? Yeah, I mean, to Zoe's point, uh, it it was fraught. And in the White House, Jill Biden, she really, uh, there was a misstep there uh, with some of the the undertones within the game. The fact that LSU is a predominantly uh, black women's team, Iowa and Caitlin uh, Clark, uh, predominantly white as well. So the fact that the, the way I think that it was received, at least by the LSU players, was that they had won, and, but they would still be forced to, share the spotlight uh, with a runner-up in an unprecedented move with Iowa, and if that grace would have been extended to them had they not prevailed. Zoe, you sound like a fan, so I have to ask you, what do you make of these incredible viewership numbers for the women's tournament in particular this year? It's absolutely incredible. Um, I remember being very, very young and watching a women's tournament and my dad saying, you know, look at what these women can do. And I think it's very exciting to see that other folks are looking to see what these women can do. And I think we should leave it there. That is a good look back at the final tournament there. And congratulations again to the LSU Tigers and to Angel Reese. Uh, Zoe, before you go, tell us what story you're following, what you're looking out for this next week. Oh, well, the Michigan legislature is back. And as I alluded to uh, earlier, the first time in 40 years that Democrats have a a trifecta of power. And it's been sort of fascinating to watch as the national media has looked as sort of this Democratic big D laboratory that is happening after Republicans being uh, in charge for so long here in the state. Teresa, what are you following? Um, I read with great interest a report from the trustees of the Social Security and Medicare Trust Fund uh, last week, uh, which isn't looking so good. But uh, I'm going to write on that and also follow some of the debt ceiling uh, standoff, which could be about these issues, but probably won't be. Uh, It'll be something that I think we'll be talking about uh, for a while. Mario, what's in your notebook? What are you reporting on? 
Well, um, now you kind of alluded to it briefly earlier in our conversation. Uh, we're about to go into another holiday weekend, and the president has not yet declared that he's going to be running again. He's at Camp David right now, uh, presumably meeting with his family. So we'll be on the lookout as to when we can expect an official uh, announcement for a Biden-Harris 2024 run. We will indeed. Thank you again to Mario Parker, Idris Calhoun, and Zoe Clark. Off the volume, no problem. The record's revolving. Evil's the mixer. I'm the rap trickster. Paparazzi. If you know any of those songs, you owe it to Seymour Stein. The record executive passed away this week. His career in the music industry spanned more than six decades. In that time, he signed some of music's biggest acts to Sire Records, which he co-founded with Richard Goderer in 1966. Stein signed some of music's most iconic acts, including The Ramones, Talking Heads, Ice-T, and of course, Madonna. With these artists, he helped popularize both the punk and new wave genres. The Talking Heads took to Instagram to pay tribute, saying, quote, Some people can spot a diamond in the rough, and Seymour was one of them. Seymour Stein was 80 years old. We'll be back with the international edition of the News Roundup after this quick break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Let's turn now to the international edition of the News Roundup, where we discuss the biggest headlines from around the world. Coming up... Israeli forces stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem's Old City, firing stun grenades and attacking Palestinian worshippers. It's drawn global condemnation. And the fallout has been an extreme escalation of tensions in the region. And why a choreographed show of solidarity... The friendship between the people of Taiwan and America is a matter of profound importance to the free world. And it is critical to maintain economic freedom peace, and regional stability. Their presence and unwavering support reassure the people of Taiwan that we are not isolated. 
has evoked a strong response from China. We'll unpack why a transit stop in the U.S. by Taiwan's president has drawn the ire of the Chinese Communist Party. It's a busy hour ahead. Joining me today are Nina Maria Potts. She's global news director at Feature Story News. Hi, Nina. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Emily Tamkin is with us, freelance journalist and author of Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. Welcome back, Emily. Great to be here. And Jack Detch is Pentagon and national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Jack, good to see you. Pleasure to be here, Amna. All right, let's start in the Middle East, where conflict has escalated. Late last night, Israeli fighter jets struck parts of Lebanon and Gaza. Israel Defense Forces say they targeted infrastructures belonging to the Islamist group Hamas. That's after the IDF said the biggest salvo of rockets since 2006 had been fired from Lebanese territory into northern Israel that afternoon. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu pledged to retaliate. This morning, two Israeli settlers were killed after a gunman opened fire on a vehicle in the occupied West Bank region. That's according to Al Jazeera. The attack targeted a car near an illegal Israeli settlement. This latest string of violence started Wednesday, when Israeli forces attacked Palestinian worshippers in East Jerusalem. Israeli police stormed the prayer hall at the Al-Aqsa Mosque during Ramadan prayer. The mosque is considered the third holiest site in Islam. So, Emily, this conflict has rapidly escalated this week. Just give us some context here. How commonplace is this, or are you worried about what you're seeing? I think we have to remember that this, I mean, as you said, it's, it's Ramadan, it's also Passover, um, Easter is about to, it's, it's about to be Easter. Um, this time of year has also been a time of violence and tension in recent years, right? Last year and the year before that at this same site, um, because it's, it's so symbolically charged and so important in, um, both Islam and Judaism. You said it's the third holiest site in Islam. I think it's important to remember, you know, Temple Mount, which is the name for in Judaism is, is the holiest site in Judaism. However, it's considered so holy that, Jews are not, in fact, traditionally supposed to step there. But this has been challenged in recent years by the religious national movement in Israel. Um, And in fact, after becoming national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir went to Temple Mount as as a visitor, which was denounced both by um, Palestinians and by the Sephardi chief rabbi, who said, you're not supposed to, according to our religion, you're not supposed to be doing that. And I, I, I say this just because I think it's important to remember that not only is this something that could have been perhaps expected based on recent years, but um, the person who's in charge of national security has himself been a provocateur uh, in this in this space. So the person who's sort of charged with keeping the peace um, has taken actions even before Ramadan and Passover that people said, that people warned would undermine that very peace. Well, Jack, let's go back to Wednesday to catch folks up. The uh, incident in which Israeli forces went into the mosque and attacked people who were worshiping there. What should we understand about that? Yeah, so Israeli police forces entered the Al-Aqsa Mosque, as we were talking about the third holiest site in all of Islam, firing rubber bullets, uh, firing stun grenades at people who were worshipping, Israel saying that this was an effort to try and root out potential agitators uh, among the crowd, people carrying fireworks and and other weapons. I I don't think that has been substantiated anywhere else. Uh, But this is certainly sort of a a major escalation of of the situation in the region. We've already seen the United Nations come out with with condemnation of these two two straight nights of of raids. Uh, The Israelis have been restricting access to the compound uh, 
for security reasons. Uh, and that's especially problematic, again, as we talked about, you talked about with Emily, the timing uh, of Ramadan and, and all of this coming up, also at a time when uh, Israel's kind of in sort of this um, really political free-for-all after Netanyahu, of course, trying to change the structure of the Supreme Court. So Israel's dealing with problems now beyond its border with uh, these rocket attacks from Lebanon, uh, and now within its border with everything that's happened politically in the past two weeks. Nina, Jack mentioned briefly there the UN response. Have we heard any kind of response from any other nations monitoring the violence? Yeah, universal international condemnation and alarm. Regional reaction in particular has been very swift, a real fear internationally that this will become a wider regional conflict. Israel insisting that it's trying to avoid a wider conflict with Hezbollah. Jordan warning that we're in a very dangerous moment. Uh, simultaneously, and Jack mentioned it just now, Netanyahu's delay of his judicial overhaul has not been enough to placate his critics. Uh, internationally, he's clashed with Biden uh, over it. There's also now a live debate on whether American Jews here should be more outspoken on the direction that Israel is going in in the broader political context. Uh, and obviously, the scale of the protests in recent weeks, uh, Netanyahu could no, no longer ignore those, but Israelis I've spoken to say they've never seen anything like this level of public outrage, uh, drawing people who would never have protested before. There's also, I think, a real risk of longer-term disillusionment. Um, just from talking to friends and colleagues in Israel, uh, there's widespread anguish within the public sector and the civil and foreign service. Friends I know wanting to leave, resign, look for other jobs, quit Israel altogether. Uh, to what extent Netanyahu's backing himself into a corner, both domestically and internationally, I think we'll just have to see. Um, but I think it's also worth saying that Israel under attack, Israel at war, has traditionally been a unifying experience. Um, He's expected to return relatively swiftly to his judicial overhaul. Obviously, we'll see what happens in light of the last few days. How much he's done lasting damage to the U.S.-Israel relationship, uh, set off alarm bells, triggered distrust. Uh, there's certainly that risk, especially if Biden champions democracy over the Israeli government's choices right now. I do want to go now to a violent attack last weekend at a cafe in St. Petersburg. It killed one of the highest-ranking supporters of the war in Ukraine. Vladlen Tatarsky was a well-known pro-war blogger and friend of the man who runs the Wagner Group. Russian authorities have blamed Ukraine. They've also arrested an anti-war activist. But it's a story with a lot of, of twists and turns. So, Emily, what do we know so far about the attack and the person that Russia arrested? Right. So they have arrested a young woman by the name of Daria Tropova. Um, she's, we know that she is 26 years old. Uh, Deutsche Welle has reported that she was a former medical student. Um, as you say, there, there is, she, was, she was photographed in an anti-war protest. She recorded a video. Now, this was likely under some, to put it mildly, uh, pressure, but basically saying, yes, I handed um, a statuette. And then it's believed that she left a uh, street food bar which is where this attack happened, and that the bomb inside was set off. However, she has also said, I, I didn't know that there was anything inside the statuette. So first we have to take her actual confession with a grain of salt. And then the broader question, of course, is, okay, let's say she did that. Who, you know, who, who told her to? To whom is this connected? Russian authorities have said that both, they, they believe that both Ukraine and Navalny's anti-corruption group 
are involved. And both Ukraine and Navalny's group have have denied this. Uh, Ukraine said, no, this is Russian infighting. And Navalny's group basically said, you're just trying to further smear uh, Navalny, who is in prison. So there is, I mean, we know that this young woman is in custody and has confessed to some part of it. But I would say that there's still more that we don't know than that we do. Well, Russian authorities are blaming Ukraine, among others. But Yevgeny Prigozhin, who runs the Wagner Group, it's the private army that's been leading the fight in places like Bakhmut, actually this week recorded this statement. I would not blame the Kiev regime for these actions. I think there is a group of radicals who hardly have any connections to the government. Jack, this runs the risk of getting very complicated very quickly, but help us understand why the head of the Wagner Group is out there contradicting the Kremlin. He's been doing this all conflict long, which is sort of a weird way to describe the passage of time. But you've seen this this split uh, really emerging very publicly between Prigozhin, the head of the Wa- of the Wagner Group, who's who's now been active, of course, in in the theater of Bakhmut, this this major city uh, where there's been a lot of fighting in Ukraine, uh, and now actually uh, moving some of those troops back to Africa, where they'd been active in in extraction, uh, dealing with some of the diamond mines in the Central Africa. African Republic, uh, as well as the oil in, in Sudan. Uh, Prigozhin's very much a wild card. He's definitely taken much more of a public and, and political role. Um, you know, from Washington, of course, from Connecticut Avenue, we're um, 8,000 miles away from that. So it's it's difficult to see exactly how that's going to suss out in the, the Kremlin parlor games. But you've already seen Putin kind of try to move some of his his folks that are more loyal, uh, the Sergei Shoigus and, and the Jeremosovs of the world, to try and potentially counter that flank. So it's going to be a fascinating parlor game of politics. Let's finish up now with some more news from Ukraine. Nina, a quick word about the claims made earlier this week that the Wagner Group had taken back Bakhmut in Ukraine. To quote Prigozhin, the town is now legally Russian. Is that true? What do we know? Well, there's been more broadly a lot of anticipation building for weeks over Ukraine's so-called spring counteroffensive, narrowly on Bakhmut, as you say, uh, the Wagner Group declaring victory over the centre of the city at the end of March, with footage showing them within 400 metres of City Hall and planting the flag. Um, but Ukraine's defences still appear to be holding in other parts. Um, Zelensky saying things were very hot. Uh, the Wagner Group claims, as you say, uh, claiming that from a legal point of view, the city was taken. An industrial complex then fell, uh, then the rail, the railway station. So incremental victories, apparently. Um, but at the same time, Ukrainian commanders are consistently working to undermine Russian confidence and claims, mainly by talking down Russian tactics of inching forward, insisting that these small chunks of territory then get returned to Ukraine very fast. The wider context is that a lot has changed over the winter for the Ukrainian military, Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, completing their uh, training overseas. You're hearing a lot about the war entering a critical next chapter, that the next few months could be decisive, uh, that Russia's defences are weakening. And that's partly because of the integration of new Ukrainian units. Western hardware is beginning to arrive on the ground. Missile systems are improving. Uh, the, the hopes that the logistics chains are getting more efficient, that we've got a clearer picture of Russian weaknesses, but timing is still going to be critical. Uh, a counterattack in the Bakhmut region could signal the beginning of the counteroffensive that we've been talking about. Victory in the south could be a game changer. It would certainly split Russian defenses. But Again, there are problems integrating new Ukrainian troops, learning how to operate new gear. That doesn't happen overnight. 
Meanwhile, Jack, there's new reports from the New York Times about leaked secret documents disclosing efforts by the U.S. and NATO to build up Ukrainian forces. What can you tell us about that? Right. These are these are substantial leaks that are, are coming from the United States and, and, and NATO. They detail training schedules, the weapons the Ukrainians need, even the rate of which they're firing these, these HIMARS artillery pieces. Uh, so a significant leak, something that potentially threatens to undermine trust between the two sides, between Ukraine and the West, and coming at a very critical time after Zelensky literally took to his Telegram account and pleaded for more weapons to carry out this spring offensive, of course, that we've been talking about. So the danger here is is things could get worse, the, the trust could be eroded. Uh, it's not necessarily clear, though, that the Russians, uh, since they've been losing about a thousand people a day in Bakhmut, uh, can actually capitalize this on this in any military sense. Well, the war in Ukraine has been central to this week's visit to China by French President Emmanuel Macron. On Wednesday, he arrived in Beijing for talks with President Xi Jinping. Ahead of that meeting, Macron made it clear he expected China to use its influence with Russia to help end the war. Talking directly to China about this conflict, the Russian aggression, what is at stake, the consequences for our Europe, it means to try and engage them in a strategic relationship that may be more complex than what we would like. This is what I will discuss. Tomorrow, in the day with the president, we will try to build, in a way, engage China toward a shared responsibility for peace and stability. Emily Macron certainly has issues at, at home that he's facing of his own. But what risk is he running here that his position puts him out of line with Washington? It's not just out of Washington. It also so he took a very a very flattering line towards Xi and to China this week, saying, you know, I know you're a, a partner in peace. Um, and meanwhile, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said, essentially, you, you would, China, you had better not help Russia, help arm Russia in its war against Ukraine. And oh, by the way, we're not really sure about you as an investment partner anymore. Um, so it's possible that, that von der Leyen and Macron are doing sort of a European good cop, bad cop routine. It's also possible that Macron sees himself as sort of forming this coalition in a way that, that no other leader can. And uh, we, will, we will say, as you say, he's, he's doing this um, with a backdrop of domestic trouble. And we will see whether or not he can sort of, uh, you know, walk this, uh, walk that tightrope. Well, the New York Times reported on Thursday that President Xi reiterated his willingness to speak with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, but when conditions and time are right, according to him. That came after he had talks with the head of the European Commission. Nina, what expectations do you have that France and the European Union can force China's hand? Pretty much none. I mean, China has played on Europe's divisions with absolute and very precise expertise on this trip. They rolled out the red carpet for Macron uh, and they gave European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen the cold shoulder. He gets the red carpet. She got the ecology minister. His schedule was jam-packed. Hers was the bare minimum. And that reflects the challenges Europe has in dealing with China. And China's very effective, Beijing's very effective uh, divide and rule strategy. Macron, as we know, is expert at nabbing a spot uh, at the top table of international diplomacy for himself. Uh, he didn't want to be uh, on the German trip 
Uh, he didn't want to be Olaf Scholz's plus one when he visited China. He wanted to wait for his own trip. Then kind of last minute, he asked the European Commission president to go along with him, as Emily says, in, a, in what was supposed to be a show of diplomatic unity. But it was anything but a united trip. And the Chinese really played on that. Uh, you know, she is seen, the European Commission president is seen as America's sidekick by the Chinese. And so she got punished. Uh, whether or not Macron emerges with any big concessions. I mean, that is the big question. He traveled with an enormous business delegation. Uh, and I think that symbolizes the sort of pressure that uh, some European governments are under. European businesses are longing for the good old days before the pandemic of flowing trade, warm relations, you know, visits, delegations, banquets, you know, in that sense that making money is good for everyone in China. The pro-business camp is really irritated by American curbs on Chinese technology, Washington's attempts to rein China in, and whether or not Macron emerges with the kind of pragmatic business deals he was hoping to, that's one thing. Uh, on Ukraine, I think he got nothing. A related note to the war in Ukraine, on Monday, Russia felt the need to respond to both the U.S. and EU, who described Russia's presidency of the U.N. Security Council as an April Fool's joke. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield told reporters that the U.S. expects the Russians to use their presiding seat to, quote, spread disinformation and promote their own agenda as it relates to Ukraine. Under Security Council rules, the presidency rotates monthly in alphabetical order among its 15 members. Russia's UN ambassador said there will be no change in the rules of the council, which is charged with maintaining international peace and security. On Tuesday, NATO Security Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said Finland will officially join the military alliance. Today is an historic day because in a few hours we will welcome Finland as the 31st member of our alliance. This will make Finland safer and NATO stronger. Emily, the addition of Finland will add some 832 miles of NATO border to Russia, nearly doubling its size. Let's just start with what it took for Finland to get full membership. Who was for it and who was against it? It's been a long road. Originally, Finland and Sweden, as you know, said that they were going to join together um, and uh, Turkey's Erdogan basically made it clear that they were not going to be allowed in together and that Finland eventually conceded Finland can go ahead, Sweden will not, due to various issues that he has with, you know, he says that there are terrorists in Sweden that haven't been, or, or political terrorists who they, he wants return. These are Kurdish individuals whom Sweden does not consider to be terrorists. Um, so Finland is in now. And we should also say that uh, Hungary's Viktor Orban backed Erdogan in this. Um because and Turkey and Hungary obviously both being NATO members, so it, mm -hmm. it. I mean, they they announced shortly, not too long after the start of the war, which has now been going on for over a year, that they intended to join. So it, it took a year, which is fast by NATO standards, but I think it's perhaps not as fast as as some might have liked. Um, you know, you 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 said that this extends <laughs> NATO's border with Russia. That's absolutely correct. And it's one irony is that this war in Ukraine which some say is because, oh, perhaps Ukraine one day was going to join NATO. Well, now there is another NATO member right on Russia's doorstep um, who that would probably not have been there had Putin not decided to launch a full-scale war on Ukraine. Jack, what about Sweden? They also applied for NATO membership in May of 2022. Their bid has also been stalled by both Turkey and Hungary. What's going on there? They sure did. And as Emily noted, right, this is be 
because uh, Sweden has been reluctant to extradite politicians and, and officials related to the PKK, that, that Kurdish org that's been fighting a low-level insurgency in Turkey um, for uh, several uh, decades now. Um, this is kind of Erdogan's tactic, right? He's kind of like a, a dog chasing a car. He's not quite sure what he's going to do when he catches it, uh, but he's going to run like heck. And especially when we're facing an election in, in Turkey in the next month, uh, it's not likely he's going to call in his chips now. Um, so this is uh, potentially still a significant holdup, and it's a significant holdup for the alliance too. Uh, Finland does expand the border, as you mentioned. They bring in F-35s. They're already at 2% of defense spending, NATO's target. Sweden's not there. Uh, but you also have to look at what Sweden brings in terms of logistics capabilities. Finnish officials telling me, of course, the submarines that that, Finland, uh, that Sweden rather brings into the alliance uh, would be critical, uh, potentially to take on Russia's northern fleet, uh, which, which sits in the Baltic seas, of course, uh, with second strike nuclear capability. So Sweden kind of is the straw that stirs the drink here. But politically, I think we're a few months out at the very least. On Tuesday, the United Nations told some 3,300 Afghan staff not to come to work in Afghanistan after Taliban authorities signaled they would enforce a ban on Afghan women working for the global body. It's the latest in a series of steps that had eroded the rights and freedoms of Afghan women and girls. Last month, the special representative of the Secretary General for Afghanistan addressed the United Nations. The bans against women working, studying, traveling without a male companion and even going to parks or buffs remains in place. The Taliban claim to have united the country, but they have also severely divided it by gender. At a moment when Afghanistan needs all of its human capital to recover from decades of war, half of the country's potential doctors, scientists, journalists, and politicians are shut in their homes, their dreams crushed, and their talents confiscated. Afghanistan under the Taliban remains the most repressive country in the world regarding women's rights. Emily, this is just the latest step, but how have women fared since the Taliban returned to power in Afghanistan in August of 2021? Sadly, I think that the clip that you just played sums it up rather nicely. I think, you know, as particularly um, girls' right to education has been severely curbed. And I I would also add that um, Secretary General Antonio Guterres said, basically said, you need to revoke this order. These women are necessary for the work that we're trying to do to help your country. Uh, So, so, I mean, it's not only that it's harmful to to, to women and girls and to their agency and to, to their right to to have control over their own lives it's also hurting efforts to help the country that they're uh, allegedly trying to lead jack what kind of pressure are the taliban under if any either internally or internationally for these ongoing crackdowns well significant pressure when you look at the money uh pressure from grant making institutions like the imf and the world bank a freezing aid that, of course, was was flowing under the Ghani administration. So when it comes to the financial crunch, it, it's very difficult. Of course, there's that $3.5 billion still frozen uh, in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Uh, the, the money that's also frozen in Switzerland doesn't seem like it's going to be released soon. So with Afghanistan kind of in this economic and, and financial tailspin, 
Uh, that's money they would need, and, and it's also recognition that they would crave diplomatically. But it doesn't seem like it's coming, and, and the Taliban could kind of sort of be in this, this diplomatic limbo of not being recognized, some countries open for business with them, uh, but you still see this, this human rights situation getting much worse. So it's difficult to imagine, at least in the West, that, that people are going to buy into the Taliban regime. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern gave a final emotional address to Parliament. I am, after all, a conviction-based politician. And I've always believed this to be a place where you can make a difference. I leave knowing that to be true. But despite that, I've become used to my time as Prime Minister being distilled down into a different list. A domestic terror attack, a volcanic eruption, a pandemic. A series of events where I found myself in people's lives during their most grief-stricken or traumatic moments. Their stories and phases remain etched in my mind and likely will forever. That is the responsibility and privilege of the role of Prime Minister. Nina Ardern had announced her resignation in January. She had her last day in the position February 7th. She's been a member of Parliament since 2008. Briefly, if you can, how would you characterize her time in office? Well, she hasn't been an uncontroversial figure in New Zealand politics, um, and she certainly did face some major challenges. You heard her just then talking about her term in office, the Christchurch mosque shootings, 51 people died in that attack, Uh, the volcanic eruption on White Island, I think 20 or so people died in that, and of course the pandemic in which she pursued some fairly controversial uh, zero uh, COVID policies. Her departure from politics, nonetheless, back in January uh, when she announced it, was a big surprise. Uh, She famously said that she didn't have enough left in the tank. Um, Her style of leadership, much more of an empathetic kind of leader, Mm -hmm. in stark contrast to Donald Trump and and Boris Johnson at the time. Uh, And she's clearly going to make an impact, continue to make an impact in her new role fighting climate change. One of the biggest stories we're covering this week. On Wednesday, a historic first. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California. President Tsai was on a transit stop through the U.S. in a whirlwind diplomatic mission that was delicate and politically fraught. The private meeting was one of several bipartisan meetings she had with a number of political leaders, and China was not happy. Nina, as you remember, after then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan last August, China responded with its largest live-fire drills in decades. They issued warnings before the Taiwanese president's visit this time, but has there been any follow-through on their threats? Well, I think the key point about President Tsai is that she's signaling just how pragmatic she is. She knew that Kevin McCarthy wants to visit Taiwan and to avoid China going absolutely berserk, she did the pragmatic thing, which was to meet him in California. She's being careful pragmatic, makes her a very interesting figure. There's also, as you say, been a flurry of activity on Taiwan. There's currently a bipartisan congressional delegation in Taipei right now amid bullish American talk about sending a strong signal to the Chinese Communist Party not to invade Taiwan. That's not at the level of the Pelosi trip. But China's reaction to the McCarthy-Tsai meeting, uh, you know, slammed it, said it was a provocation and a violation of the one China principle. Uh, It also moved an 
aircraft carrier. But all in all, I think those manoeuvres have been relatively muted uh, compared to last year's response from Beijing to Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, there are some relationships on the mend. Iran and Saudi Arabia's top diplomats met face-to-face for the first time in seven years on Thursday. The two countries agreed to reopen their embassies and consulates in a deal that was facilitated by China, where the meeting took place. Jack, why is this important for each of these countries and the greater region? Well, you're potentially looking at the normalization of Iran in the region, which would be a huge deal given the freeze they've been under since 1979 and the takeover of the Ayatollahs. But but let's couch this a little bit. This is more like a first date than a marriage proposal. They'll start to the process of reopening embassies, official visits, allowing visas. But the important thing to look at here, at least geopolitically between the United States and China, is that this deal is taking place in Beijing. The foreign ministers are meeting today in Beijing, uh, Beijing, of course, the, the region's largest oil customer, and you're looking at the United States steadily getting less invested in the Middle East. Trump not spon- responding militarily uh, to the Abcake attack, uh, the, the Iranian drone attack on, on the Saudi oil facility in 2019. A lot of people saw that as the U.S. not enforcing the, the age-old Carter Doctrine that said the U.S. would protect oil supplies in the region. And now we don't even see sort of the bromance and, and bonhomie that you had between Trump and NBS certainly has not crossed over under the Biden administration. So if there's going to be a normalization of Iran, is it going to be made in China? I, I think that's going to be the question on the minds of policymakers. Also on Sunday, Saudi Arabia and other members of OPEC Plus announced they will be cutting their oil production starting in May. The drop in production will be equivalent to 3.7 percent of global demand. Emily, explain this to us. Why are they slowing the spigot now? Well, so Saudi Arabia, which is the top OPEC producer, um, said that they are taking a precautionary measure and that this is meant to support the stability of the oil market. Um, It is also going to mean a dramatic increase in prices, and the move has been criticized um, uh, by some as as overly bullish, and particularly by the United States, which has wanted to keep oil uh, oil prices low and has been against cuts because of economic instability, because of Russia's war in Ukraine, um, and because of of market chaos, um, has said has has uh, urged that such such cuts uh, not take place, but they were. Nonetheless, they have been made. Emily, we know last time they announced oil production cuts, we saw an increase in gas prices. Saudi officials back then said it was to stabilize the market. Do we know what the effect will be of these cuts when it comes to gasoline prices? Yes, analysts have said this is going to mean an immediate rise in prices. Um, so it's, it's you know, second verse, same as the first, um, with, with oil cuts and, uh, or sorry, uh, production cuts and Saudi Arabia and you know, we were just talking about China's role in the region and, and the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Um, this is yet another sign that this is still a partnership, um, but certainly not an alliance. And, and this is directly counter to the wishes of the United States. Also, Nina, we need to talk about TikTok. Britain's privacy watchdog hit TikTok with a nearly $16 million fine for misusing children's data. The Information Commissioner's Office says the company didn't adequately remove accounts used by children under the age of 13. How has TikTok responded? 
Well, I think it'll be really interesting to see just how long TikTok can survive the sustained global assaults. Um, the UK fine comes on the back of Australia banning TikTok from government devices. That's the latest government uh, to do so. The fine in the UK, as you say, was over allowing children under the age of 13 on TikTok. Um, and TikTok was accused in the UK of basically breaking its own rules, um, specifically because TikTok had failed to secure the consent of parents and guardians to use uh, the children's data after they'd set up accounts, even though they were uh, too young. Britain is also not alone. Italy has just started investigating TikTok for failing to enforce its own rules, again, breaking its own rules uh, on removing dangerous content uh, relating to self-harm, suicide, mental mental health. So TikTok is definitely having a bad month. Uh, the trouble is that the debate over TikTok has also tapped into parental fears over the perceived damage TikTok is doing to their children's, say, concentration spans, their mental health. Uh, there's a growing debate over how TikTok is influencing their social behavior and life choices. And that's all much harder for the company to, back to your question, much harder for the company to navigate and ignore those um, concerns because a backlash over its responsibility in relation to children uh, and its power to influence social behavior, that's just much harder to crisis manage than straight straightforward bans on government devices. Jack, I also want to ask you about an international operation that got a lot of attention because of its name. International law enforcement agencies have seized a sprawling dark web marketplace that hosted millions of stolen credentials and digital fingerprints. What more do we need to know about the multinational crackdown known as Operation Cookie Monster? Well, first... uh to be a fly on the wall at that Justice Department and FBI <laughs> pitch meeting, right, where they named it. But there's actually a, a method to the madness in this name, which is that the Genesis market was selling over 80 million uh, usernames and passwords, cookies, uh, web fingerprints. So all sorts of, of credentials were flying around on this dark web marketplace for people to just snap up and buy. The EU has already gone in and arrested more than 100 people involved in this marketplace. So a significant legal crackdown. We'll see if that adva- advance if they can prosecute people. But is is this kind of a game of whack-a-mole for international prosecutors and, and law enforcement officials? Because this is one prolific black market. But of course, you've had Silk Road in the past. You've had other uh, marketplaces shut down. And, you know, the question is, do you have the tools to do it? Uh, or are you kind of always going to be playing this game where you can't deter uh, these types of actors. That whack-a-mole analogy is one we've heard before. Does this latest operation signify anything new when it comes to global operations or or cooperation across multinational operations? Yeah, it's it's significant that the FBI, the Justice Department, and the EU are involved in it. I, I think it's going to be interesting to see as this advances, right? Uh, is the EU going to be softer in their prosecutions? Uh, is, is the U.S. going to be a little tougher? Uh, so we'll kind of see potentially those friction points between law enforcement officials across the transatlantic and, and how they cooperate together here. Well, this week, NBC News reported on what exactly that Chinese spy balloon was doing as it flew over the United States. Here's U.S. Defense Department Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh speaking to reporters on Monday. We do know that the balloon was able to be maneuvered um, and purposely driven along its track, but not going to get into specific sites it was able to hover over. But what we did do is take uh, precautionary steps to limit 
the intelligence value that it would be able to collect. You know, again, we we took uh, steps to protect our own military installations uh, from foreign intelligence collection. A U.S. fighter jet struck down the balloon off the coast of South Carolina in early February. Jack, what intelligence do U.S. officials say that the spy balloon was actually gathering? What was gathering uh, intelligence on sensitive sites across the United States, especially those nuclear missile silos uh, in the northern part of the United States and in the Dakotas. So that's potentially significant intelligence. Now, we don't know how much was actually transmitted to the Chinese, but it's going to raise more questions in Congress, right? Because you've seen kind of this intramural fight uh, between congressional Republicans like Senator Roger Wicker, uh, the chairman of the Armed Services Committee and the Biden administration. Republicans basically saying, you're not giving enough information. You're not telling us why you didn't take the shot uh, when this was over the Aleutian Islands. So I think this is something we can expect to see kind of an oversight fight to play out over months. Uh, and it's just going to raise questions too, right, about these these previous balloon flights that happened under, under the Trump administration. What were they able to gather? Jack, what information have we heard from Chinese officials uh, about what they've been able to gather? Very little, basically. Ever since the shoot down of that spy balloon in, in February, which of course was seen by the public uh, out on South Carolina beaches. Uh, So certainly kind of the U.S.-China friction entering American living rooms. Uh, China, of course, calling that initial shoot down a provocation, uh, the first air-to-air kill by uh, the F-22 fighter jet. Um, But we haven't seen, at least on that issue, a a lot coming up. Uh, It's going to be interesting, though, I mean, if this these flights do continue, um, does that raise the question of, you know, can you have diplomacy with the Chinese? Apparently, uh, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, considering again a- another visit to Beijing that was called off by that uh, balloon flight, of course. So, uh, you know, this is going to be potentially something where uh, if these types of provocations keep occurring, uh, the guardrails are really just going to continue to fall down in the relationship. Emily, it's been an interesting week when you look at Chinese influence on the global stage. We saw, of course, these revelations on the intelligence gathered from the spy balloon, but also the role China is playing in the Middle East, brokering that deal between Iran and Iran and Saudi Arabia. What does all this mean for relations between the U.S. and China? I think, I mean, yes, it's, it's certainly been a... Uh... All of this is certainly a feather in China's diplomatic cap. But I think to go back to our earlier conversation, much of it will depend on how effectively China is able to split uh, the European Union and individual European countries from the United States. And if it cannot manage to do that, um, I think that we might see a, a slight change or reassessment of its foreign policy goals. But, you know, I think I think in this, she's third term, um, we're, we're really seeing a more assertive China on on the global stage, and not just in the region, right, but in Europe, in the Middle East, all over the world. Another major story this week we're following on Tuesday. The U.S. Central Command said that the U.S. killed a senior Islamic State leader in Syria. The U.S. says the leader was responsible for planning Islamic State attacks in Europe and in Turkey. Jack, why is this a noteworthy move by the U.S.? It's significant because it's another ISIS leader, uh, U.S. Central Command saying this was a, a key figure in, in ISIS leadership, uh, Khalid Ayed Ahmad al-Jabari. Uh, so it, it helps the U.S. kind of put more pressure on that northwest pocket of Syria uh, where the U.S. hasn't had a, a presence in terms of boots on the ground. Of course, uh, the U.S. was helping uh, the U.S.-backed uh, Syrian Democratic Forces in the middle Euphrates River Valley as they really cleaned up the ISIS presence there in, in 2019. Uh, the question, of 
course, is going to be we've we've talked about this sort of whack-a-mole metaphor. It's it's also kind of a metaphor here when when you talk about these terror strikes. Is the U.S. going to be able to put consistent pressure on the ISIS caliphate? And of course, you have this tit for tat going on uh, with the Iranians, uh, the the strikes between the U.S. and Iran in Syria. So it's going to raise a lot of questions, at, at least politically, as there's a war powers debate going on in Congress, whether this mission is, is sustainable or whether these 900 troops that are uh, camped out throughout Syria, uh, you know, are, are in real trouble and, and perhaps they need to get out of there. This is all, of course, while Israel, a close U.S. ally, has vowed to stop Iran's entrenchment in Syria. Nina, when you look at that, what does this mean for relations between the U.S. and Iran? I think the U.S. is an incredibly uh, weakened position. And uh, going back to the China's brokering um, of a diplomatic breakthrough between Iran and Saudi Arabia, I think um, the U.S. incrementally, and I hate to say this, is losing its legitimacy um, in the region or is at risk of losing its legitimacy in the region. And just to come back to Jack's uh, political point about um, Syria, the strike there came after... Uh, U.S. lawmakers were considering a war powers resolution uh, to withdraw those 900 troops, but the resolution didn't make it through. Um, I think the world has shifted dramatically since the early days of U.S. strikes in Syria. Uh, The U.S. is under much more scrutiny. Uh, There are demands with every strike for more transparency, more accountability. The margin for error for the United States in the region is much, much narrower than it ever was. And China is really playing up its uh, ability to broker Uh, relationships in in the region because it turns its back or doesn't seem to care about human rights, much more interested in economic interests. And so uh, China really comes out, I think, you know, on top as uh, the, the, the powerhouse of influence in the region. It was a busy week on the world stage. I want to thank all of my guests for helping us to understand it a little bit better. Thank you to our guests, Nina Maria Potts, Global News Director at Feature Story News, Emily Tamkin, freelance journalist and author of Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities, and Jack Detch, Pentagon and National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy. Thank you all for your time today. And to round up the roundup this week, a remembrance. Japanese composer Ruichi Sakamoto passed away on Tuesday. He scored more than 40 films worldwide throughout his career, including The Last Emperor and The Revenant. An Oscar, BAFTA, Grammy, and Golden Globe winner, Sakamoto was also known for founding the Yellow Magic Orchestra. He got his first big break in movies when he co-starred with David Bowie in 1983's Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. He became an anti-nuclear activist after the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster. Ruichi Sakamoto was 71. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Angiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Amna Nawaz, in for Jen White. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk more soon.
This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me. And I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.